You're listening to the Mining and Energy Union podcast. Yes, you are. I'm Tim Brunero. Welcome to the second of two episodes we're doing on the BMA Central Agreement, which covers a number of central Queensland mines and is very important to the broader Queensland coal industry. We're doing a two-episode special on it as it's just come up for negotiation again as of May 2021. The agreement covers members at Gunyala Riverside, Peak Downs, Sarraji and Blackwater, and mines on Cairn Maintenance, Norwich Park, Gregory and Crinham, and it's commonly called the BHP Agreement. In our first episode, we looked at the history of the agreement from the 1970s to the year 2000, so now we're going to pick up the story in 2001 and take you through to the present day. In 1998, a number of the mines opted to negotiate their own agreements. The Hawke and Keating governments had been encouraging enterprise bargaining rather than larger industry-wide agreements. Well, in 2001, things changed back and the agreements which had been separate came together again. Queensland District Vice President Steve Pearce explains. In 2001, more by good luck than good management, a number of the BHP agreements expired very closely together. So you had Peak Down, Sarraji, Norwich Park and Gregory. Um, All of their agreements expired within about six to eight weeks of each other. There had been a a realisation and a recognition by this time by the union that by doing single enterprise agreements, particularly with someone as ruthless as BHP, they were settling at the weakest operation and then dragging those lower conditions across to the stronger operations. We'd seen that where they'd um, been operating in New South Wales. So a decision was made that the lodges had a number of issues and they were to be common across all of the agreements and that they would hold the line on them. BHP had a, a, a totally different IR agenda then. Their view was that they would not negotiate unless negotiations were on their terms. That resulted in um, the membership at Peak Down, Sarraji, Norwich and Gregory engaging in protected industrial action and that was for a period of about six to eight weeks. During that time we saw the true colours of BHP where they brought scabs into the mines to, um, to operate equipment while the employees were out on strike. They hired private security companies to follow people around, to monitor people, to try and intimidate people. They actually uh, went beyond just monitoring their own employees and there there were were businesses within the community that were supporting the striking workers Um, and their employees and their management were subject to uh, scrutiny by these, um, these security guards as well. Marty and Leonie Crane were in the thick of things on the picket line. Marty was Lodge President of Peak Downs. Leonie says BHP's creepy tactics were well known around town. They would be, you know, a few metres away, but we knew that they would follow us. Across the road from where we lived was the school, and we knew, you just know and you see things all the time where you live, because we had two daughters living with us and a grandson, so therefore we were well aware of what was going on across the road and they were there quite often. 
Um, a few of the other union official wives knew that they were there watching their house. They would follow us into the supermarket. Rick Gazard's wife would stand at the turnstile of the supermarket and try to speak to women and especially foreman's wives to try to get them their support and all that sort of thing. Leonie remembers being followed into the bank. I remember being in the bank one day and at that time there was a, um, we only had passbooks and somebody, a fellow come and stood right behind me to look over my shoulder to see what was in the passbook. Leonie Crane says there was a reason BHP's private investigators were interested in her passport. She and Marty prepared themselves well in advance of agreements to make sure they had the resources to protect their conditions if push came to shove. The best advice we were ever given when we started at the mines, you always had to have a strike fund and we had that till the day we left. We always had money put aside in case of a strike. Marty remembers the picket line in 2001 well. There was always the smell of a barbecue, musicians, and an atmosphere of camaraderie. It was just great, because some of the people who worked out there, one was a drummer. He used to play in bands. Another bloke used to play his, his, his trumpets and that sort of stuff. They'd entertain the whole people. They, they'd just play and bash drums and... Yeah, and the women hit their saucepans and <laughs> pans and that. Yeah, it was just sort of a good, good show. And the company had it. They, the foreman told me that that was the biggest dread they had. I was driving through the women's picket line coming out of town and then coming through the picket line when they knew that those blokes would have to go back to work one day and that they was driving through the picket line. Yep. Marty remembers out on the picket line, things could get monotonous. And the other things that the blokes enjoyed. This is just to give people a bit of satisfaction instead of sitting on the picket line. We went and stopped all the trains. The train drivers was on our side. They said, all you got to do is stand beside the line and we will pull up. We won't go in. And they did that. The train drivers were fantastic. Yeah. We had a yarn to all the different unions that were involved. And, yet, and you know, the, the a whole lot of truck drivers wouldn't even go past the pickle line. They said, if you've got a pickle line, we won't cross it. And that's all we had to do, eh? Because it, it was great. Yeah. But the support we had from other unions and other people from the outside. Otherwise, we wouldn't even let Nero win on that. Yep. Marty says a lot was at stake, as BHP wanted to kill the town. They want to get rid of towns. They really did. So uh, they were going to start bringing in fly-in, fly-out, just to break the union, because not many fly-in, fly-out people are, are involved in unions. The whole idea was to break the unions, and that was what it was all about, in my opinion. Leone remembers that time as incredibly difficult. We would have to go out to Peak Downs in the mornings because the blokes would have to be there at the beginning of shift, so they'd be out there. 4.35 o'clock, I'm not sure what time. We did. We were out there and then even when we started picketing Snob Hill in Moorumbah, we'd be up there at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, then Marty would leave home by 5 of the morning. He wouldn't get home till close on midnight. He'd have tea, we'd go to bed and there'd be phone calls all night and he'd be up again and gone by 5. So you just 
survive on adrenaline because that's what you have to do because you have to be in the appropriate place at the right time. Knob Hill comes down into Mills Avenue, which was the main drag out of Moorumbah. We would be standing there. There might only be a dozen of us, but we were always there. Leonie remembers once when the townsfolk were definitely in the right place at the right time, in the part of town where the senior foreman and managers lived. We had a meeting at the, at the community centre in Moorumbah, and this one particular woman said, OK, I know that there's a meeting at Rick Gazard's wife tomorrow for all the foreman's wives, for her to talk to them. So within, well, it was less than 24 hours. That's how we had got all the women there, got Channel 7 to come. We were there with our pots and pans and everything, waiting for these women to drive up Knob Hill. There were hundreds and hundreds of them. We never bashed on cars or anything, but we were there um, waiting. And a lot of the women didn't turn up once they knew that we were there. Marty Crane says the action was a turning point. And they tell the story that they were pretty genuinely uh, upset about it. The wives were upset about it and everything. And that's when they got to the husbands and said, look, you've got to sort something out. Steve Pearce says another circuit breaker came in the form of a new proposal from the union. After about eight weeks, there was a decision made uh, collectively across the BHP group that we should return to work, get back inside the gate. Now, Andrew Vickers, who was the president of the, the miners' union at the time, led those negotiations for the state officials, um, and um, there was obviously the ETU and the AMWU involved in those discussions, um, but they were, they were principally driven by Andrew. He put a proposal forward um, to the union, unions at the time that given that there was only three other BHP pits who were not on strike at that time, um, their agreements were due to expire, that it made sense to put a position to BHP to negotiate one document to cover all of their operations, which was um, is, is now known colloquially as the central document, um, which would have the main body of the document containing all the terms and conditions that were common to every pit, and then there would be schedules which would be pit-specific information which would sit with the uh, central document. So there was a fair bit of discussion about that. At the end of the day, um, Andrew was able to not only convince some of the members who were reluctant to pick up something like that, but also convince the other unions and BHP that that would be the appropriate mechanism going forward. And as a result of that, there was a, an agreement that was negotiated that at the time, and probably even to this day, uh, was, a, was an industry-leading agreement. It was very comprehensive. Not only did it pick up the award um, and all of the ward protections, but it had provisions in there, it continued to hold provisions in there that meant that labour hire and contractors who came on site had to be paid the same as the pit employees. That where BHP moved to hive some of its business off to a contractor, which would see 
the displacement of permanent employees, that those employees had to be picked up by the contractor for at least the first 12 months, and that had to be on their current rates of pay. That went through, and there was a security of employment provision, which was uh, a provision that, that basically ensured that if BHP were going to try and reduce its numbers, they couldn't uh, reduce numbers at one pit and have vacancies at another pit. That they had to make sure that if employees were going to be displaced, then if there were vacancies at other BHP operations, those employees absolutely had first right at those vacancies before anybody else. It protected um, workforce representation, which was really the, the uh, protection for the delegates. Um, it, it protected the processes for unions to be able to hold monthly meetings, how they'd hold them, ensured that they were still paid for them, and provided elected union delegates on the site to be able to be released from site to attend commission hearings and uh, and other industrial hearings that um, they were required to do as, as part of their role as a delegate. The 2001 agreement was seen as a good outcome. Yeah, it was. That agreement was the standard for, for all other agreements to be compared to and it saw a position where the employees had really, through their negotiations, had put themselves back up on the, on the top deck of the industrial landscape with BHP. It was a good outcome, it was a good win, it contained good conditions and provided them with good terms and conditions and security of employment going forward. The 2001 negotiations were over. But there were other forces determined to give central Queensland miners and their families bloody noses. This time, it was the anti-worker Howard government. Yeah, in the early 2000s, Howard got in and himself and Reith and Freehill's lawyers um, set about destroying the industrial landscape to create uh, a position, basically, where the employer had all of the power and what they did was they made a number of conditions and agreements. They, they called them prohibited content and they were no longer allowed to be contained within agreements. There was no ability to negotiate those away or to try and put a, a different arrangement in place that provided the same thing. They had to be removed. So through that time, we lost um, seniority which was very important in the coal mines because it, um, it provided protection for employees in the event of redundancy. The least senior you were <clears throat> the, in the event of a redundancy, um, then you were the first one to go. The most senior, then you were uh, further up the list to, before you got necked. We lost increase of hands, which was um, if people were made redundant and then the mines were going to re-employ, they had to offer those people who'd been made redundant the opportunity to come back first. Um, we lost that. We lost a lot of protection for delegates and obviously some of that protection was lost in the, in the loss of seniority and increase of hands. And we lost protection for permanence where we had provisions that um, ensured that in the event of redundancies that supplementary labour had to be removed before permanence, that was gone. It was available for the company to terminate permanent employees and maintain supplementary labour. It also made it uh, illegal 
for the employees at a mine site to direct what rates of pay and terms and conditions that contractors would have to receive when they came on a mine site. We saw then the BHPs and others move to a position where they paid contractors what they thought it should be paid and the contractors uh, were no longer had the protection of the agreements and that saw not only um, their terms and conditions reduced but it saw an influx of those people coming into the mines um, because they were seen as a, a, a cheaper source of labour which has then morphed into the poison that we see in the industry and general industry today where those contractors aren't even given the respect by the mining companies and have been replaced by labour hire because labour hire are now the, the cheapest alternative um, labour source on the market. In 2004, another set of negotiations regarding the BHP agreement had to be faced. Steve Pearce explains. BHP came back, obviously, with a, a position that they were armed with the, um, the laws that Howard had put in and that uh, they were intent on pairing back as, as much as they could to suit the agreements to their industrial landscape. There was, again, negotiations at, at a level. It had all of the ability for all of their mines to engage in protected industrial action. It ended up in a, in a position where that was being contemplated and the management at BHP at the time decided that um, they didn't want to get into a position where they had all of their mines exposed, potentially to use protected industrial action. But partway through the negotiations, BHP decided they were. The pits engaged again in protected industrial action. It wasn't to the level that it was in the 2001 agreement, but it was done with a lot of discipline and a lot of ingenuity so that the action had more of an effect on BHP than it did on the employees and it ended up, uh, ended up in a position where BHP were forced to come back to the table, um, were forced to concede a number of positions um, to the union and were forced to concede good wage increases. So the 2004 agreement again set the high bar for the industry, showed that um, collectively the employees were able to take on a multinational company, which BHP had become by then, and were able to achieve good outcomes uh, for themselves in an industrial landscape that was um, weighted very heavily towards the employer. You're listening to the Mining and Energy Union podcast. This is the second episode in a two-episode series we're doing on the BMA Central Agreement, or the BHP Central Agreement as it's more commonly known. This agreement covers a number of central Queensland mines and is very important to the broader Queensland coal industry. We're doing a two-episode special on it as it's just come up for negotiation again as of May 2021. We've been tracking the history of the agreement from the 1970s and we've now arrived at 2010. Now Queensland District President Steve Smythe takes up our story at the 2010 negotiations. The theme was really set when we went to the first uh, bargaining meeting and BHP literally put a 100-page document on the table wanting to reinvent the wheel. There was no doubt from the onset of that first 
informal negotiations that BHP wanted to reset where they seen themselves in the coal industry, uh, where they seen themselves as an employer. Um, they certainly come with a pretty extensive set of claims and they're all about reducing the union's ability to represent its members, uh, reduce the union's ability to ensure that a decent deal was done and struck for its members and, and, and certainly it's about, in my view, looking back on it um, and no doubt it was about BHP wanting to take control back of the agreement and, and how they dictated terms. So that's really where it started and then what, as we know in history, 2010 it took just over two years to negotiate an agreement. It was a bit of disputed times. There was picket lines uh, across the Bowen Basin at one time there. I think it was one one third of the world's seaborne coal production had stopped out of the central Queensland BHP coal mines. You had mines sitting idle for seven days, seven mines, um, at a time when the, the coal price was going through the roof. Um, and, and you just had, what, what really happened was where either side had, had gone back to the trenches to consider its position, but it certainly was a bit of dispute. Rank and file members who live in these communities got to see firsthand how ruthless the company could be. Um, we, we, you know, we've seen members unfortunately lose their jobs through this dispute. There was some activities that occurred around the place. Um, you know, picket lines can be uncompromising at times. It can be it can be a tough gig, but but I've got to say I, I've, I've got to pay the ultimate um, respect to each and every one of our members and their families in these communities who stood firm. Um, day and night, um, stuck stuck firm throughout this dispute, um, which took, and there was a dispute, which took just over two years to resolve, um, to have an agreement be ratified at the end of that dispute after a number of votes. Um, the rank and file, certainly, um, even when the agreement was was accepted, um, there was still a number of members who were bitter, bitter disappointed with it which is totally understandable but at the end of the day um, what what they did do um, they held off BHP's attack on their rights they held off BHP's approach to try to reset the coal industry because it's a it's, it's a known in the coal industry that BHP sets the example for all the other coal operators um, so I guess BHP took it upon themselves to try to reset not just for themselves but for the rest of the coal sector so they weren't successful in that. Um, as I said, the union stood firm, the members stood firm, their families in the community stood firm under an enormous amount of attack by the world's largest commodity trader. And, you know, it, they threw everything at it. Um, media campaigns, the lot, you know, even uh, with, with some of the security they had in place at some of the mines, you know, it, uh, at the picket lines around the community. So there was things they did which they, they denied, but, you know, they applied a lot of pressure. So. Certainly there's a bit of dispute um, and again, you know, members stood firm. They, they, they sent it all the way through and they need to be congratulated. As Steve mentioned, negotiations stretched out over two years. During this time, BHP was making super profits of $1.3 billion every six months from its central Queensland coal operations. Union members funded a TV advertising campaign to get their message out. Local woman, Denise Robertson, put her voice to the ad. My husband works very hard for BHP so that they can make their record profits, but it's never enough. 
Now they want my husband to work longer hours and more shifts and they even expect him to work over Christmas. It's just not fair. Being a BHP family used to mean you were looked after. This was a great town to live in. Now the company have more, but care less. Fair go, BHP. With a $23 billion profit, you can afford to do the right thing. Union members' partners, including Denise Robertson, even went to BHP HQ in Melbourne to speak to the CEO, Marius Kloppers. They set up a barbecue out the front and along with the assembled media, waited to see if someone from BHP had the guts to speak to them. So Maureen and Denise, uh, you just went in there, what happened? Um, we asked to speak with Marius himself. Um, he, they, they, they said to us that he was unavailable, um, but five minutes someone will come down, so we're just waiting. Um, well, nothing at the moment. We just keep getting told five minutes, five minutes. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's been 25 minutes. We've been um, assured someone is coming in yes, five minutes. Yes, but we have been told that, but, I mean, And they're yeah. coming to get us when they come down, yeah. whoever that may be. So, yeah, this is the third time. And, I mean, he has stated in the media before that, you know, it's, it's, you know, that's what you need to do. You need to come to the community. You need to see firsthand the issues that are there. He's saying it. Come down and see us. So I've spoken to the rep. The gentleman who's coming down, his name will be Antonius, and he's a media liaison. The problem is Antonius had no background on what's happening to give you correct answers to your questions that you're going to propose to him. By the way, Marius won't be coming down, so it'll be Antonius and media But is Marius here? I don't know. I'm not sure you know that information either. I just get told he's not coming. Seriously, it's been an hour 20 now, and I feel if he felt we were, ta if he was taking this seriously, he would come down or he would send an exec down here to talk to us, and I don't Not believe... Not a media liaison officer. Yeah. No, that's just yeah. Who doesn't know, supposedly, what's coming, going on? I mean, I've had to leave three children behind to be cared for to come because I'm passionate about our community. I'm passionate about, you know, where we live and where we raise our children, and I just, I think if Marius cared, he would come down. Steve Smythe explains what the sticking points were. Job security, uh, rosters, hours of work, representation, um, dispute or grievance procedures. Um, there's also some issues around, um, at the time, some of the accommodation arrangements. But certainly, um, for what it was worth, everyone stood firm. You know, like any dispute, do you get everything you want? No, you don't. But you've got a way at the end of the day, um, did, did you protect and maintain conditions and entitlements that the agreement already had within it. Um, and again, this is operating under um, a set of laws that have been really laid out since, I guess, work choices was gone, but you still had the fair work legislation, which didn't go far enough. Um, we, as a union, we believe in, in repairing some of the what work choices destroyed. Um, so, so it was it was really again under an, under a set or or negotiations under a change of government. Labor's there, but you had a, you had the fair work legislation, which really didn't go far enough. You know, you still had some non-permitted matters that you couldn't put into agreements. You know, how it had demolished and decimated the the award system um, from through what him and his uh, government had done. So, so you know, guys and girls, I guess, at the time mightn't have reflected on it because we're just focused on the, the BMA or the BHP agreement and dispute, but they certainly were fighting um, at times against a system which is just uh, designed, in my view, to protect the boss and support big business. And 
you know, we sit now in 2021 as well, but I guess, again, the resolve of the guys got us through and we maintained our protections around representation, uh, union rights, hours of work, rosters, representation, training and a number of other important um, conditions. The next round of negotiations were in 2015 and things had changed in the intervening years. Since 2012 agreement, you know, Norwich Park mine had closed, had gone on the care and maintenance. The Gregory mine had um, gone on the care and maintenance and the Crinham mine had um, ceased uh, operations due to the fact that the underground mine had come to the end of its reserve. So I guess the, um, what had changed is the number of mines actually had dropped out of that agreement, um, but they still were picked up to be um, at that point in time and to be covered by it in case those mines reopen because they're on care and maintenance other than crying them. So that sort of changed it a bit. Uh, numbers had reduced under that agreement because what the company normally does, what we've experienced is through the life of an agreement, um, when they terminate a member or they remove, get rid of a permanent worker, they don't, norm they don't replace them. Um, they simply backfill the role with a labour hire or, or, or other type of employment. So numbers have been reduced across the board. And in 2015, BHP changed tack and attempted to split the mines apart again. Then what we seen was uh, an approach by the employer then, not to probably go as hard as they did last time, but what they did do, they actually wanted to split the agreement and have a separate agreement for the Blackwater mine in the south and then have what they call the mines in the north covered by a, a different agreement. So. Um, their attack this time, or their approach this time, was to, to have two separate agreements um, covering their employees. Um, the union, we, we weren't accepting of that. We believe that one agreement served best. Um, and, and, and in fact, um, that agreement took just on two years to negotiate. Um, and in the end, BHP ended up offering a rollover of the existing agreement after in excess of 50 meetings, 50 separate meetings that period to try to, and a number of uh, votes the company put up which were, were overwhelmingly um, rejected by our members. So that, that set of negotiations um, was a little bit different. Um, there was no protected industrial action taken. Um, those meetings uh, at times w w were quite ludicrous that you'd meet on a Tuesday, for example, in Blackwater to talk about the Blackwater Agreement, then on the Wednesday or Thursday you'd, you'd meet in Moranbrae to talk about an agreement that would cover uh, Norwich Park, Gregory Crinham, Siraji Peakdowns and Gunyala. Yet the agreement had the same terms and conditions. So it was just a, an attempt by BHP to, to I guess, uh, hive off the Blackwater parts of the agreement, which wasn't successful. All the members stood firm. We wanted one agreement with one scope to cover all those mines, which we end up getting after nearly two years. Um, the company offered a rollover. Um, and, and in that, um, it was eventually voted up in and around 2018 um, to run for, for the three years. So there's a three-year agreement, the next agreement, um, which, which was voted up in 2018 and continued to operate until May 2021. Well, we've been tracking the BHP Central Agreement since the 1970s and now, finally, we're at the present day. Steve explains where we are as of 2021. We come forward to 20, May 2021. Um, we've uh, commenced negotiations with BHP Coal about a new new um, replacement agreement. BHP have um, offered a, um, a rollover 
quite interesting. Straight up front, they've offered a rollover and a and a one and a half percent monetary increase. We met in uh, first week of July actually um, to discuss that agreement. The union at this point in time has not accepted the company's rollover. Um, we put back a counter proposal around wanting to beef up a number of a uh, number of clauses. They include job security, particularly in light of um, automation and other technology change. Um, we want to put a, a minimum meaning or secure meaning numbers in the agreement. We want um, to ensure that the open cut examiners and what they call deputies are covered by the same union agreement, not be hived off and, and, and offered various roles or a staff role. Um, and we just generally want to improve the job security clauses in and around this agreement. We've now put that back to the BHP this week, uh, in the first week of July, sorry, to say that we're not accepting of their agreement. Um, they were they're certainly not happy about that, um, that they believe a rollover was fair. Of course they wouldn't as the employer. But um, we want to, as I said, we want to make sure that we continue to improve and increase and, and ensure we have benefits there for our members around job security because the future is a challenging one. You know, we, we, we face a number of challenges in the future like the industry as a whole around technology change, climate change, demographics, um, the industry itself. So we want to make sure that we, we're putting our members and their families and the communities first and foremost and getting an agreement that will deliver benefits to them and their families for the next uh, three or four years. And, and we want to make sure that, and as we do, our membership are driving this, driving the agenda for this agreement. We've got to make sure their members are locked in, in support and behind and shoulder to shoulder with um, the relevant lodge reps and the district reps negotiating this because it's an important agreement um, and what, what we're requesting or what we're putting forward is, is not too much to us around job security and minimum manning, representational rights and other protections so um, again we're very very confident the membership will embrace the position we're taking, they're the ones that drive the agenda, they're the ones that determine what, what, what needs to be on the table to be negotiated so we'll continue to negotiate um, with the company in good faith um, and, and again at the end of the day the company's got to acknowledge and pay some respect and dignity to their employees, our members um, in, in what their claims are. Okay, so that's the end of the second of two episodes looking at the history of the BHP Central Agreement. We've done this 40 plus year history of this agreement which is very important to the broader Queensland mining industry in two parts. This episode covers the 20 years between the year 2000 and 2021. If you missed it, go back and listen to our first episode, which covers from the 1970s to the year 2000. So there you go. What an incredible journey, 40 years of industrial history. Love it. If you enjoy what we do, please tell your friends and show them how they can get us on their phone. This has been the Mining and Energy Union podcast. Talk to you next time.